Alrighty, so John chapter 6. We are actually going to be finishing up this chapter. We've been here for seven lessons, I believe. We're going to be in the very last section this morning of John 6. You can see we've entitled uh, this whole sermon that Christ has been preaching in this chapter, John 6, 22 through 71, God's gift of true bread, the flesh of the Son of God for the eternal life of chosen disciples. And uh, this has been a really long sermon, a discourse that Jesus has been giving in the synagogue of Capernaum. And he's preaching this in response to the misunderstanding of the Jews um, at the sign that he just performed. He feeds the 5,000 and there's this multitude of followers. Uh, They're following him all around Galilee and they're mainly following him because of signs that he's doing. And you remember in the Gospel of John, signs aren't bad, they're good, they're important, but they're not ends in themselves. They're meant to call people to look beyond the signs to the spiritual reality that the signs are illustrating. They're meant to point people to Christ, to call people to press into Christ, to know who he is and what he has come to provide. Well, Jesus knows these people who are pursuing him are not pursuing him for that reason. He knows they're mainly interested in signs, not his work, not his words. And so he actually goes on to give them another sign, this feeding of the 5,000. And it will be through this sign that Jesus will reveal to them how signs are to be understood. And he's going to reveal what his true identity and mission is. And then he's going to reveal what he has actually come to provide. And in response to this miracle, he feeds feeds the 5,000. Actually, it's more like 20,000. There's 5,000 men. Massive miracle. The crowd sees Jesus has just created this miracle bread in the wilderness, and they conclude he's the new Moses that was promised. And so they're ready to crown him king and lead uh, rebellion and liberation from Rome and usher in the kingdom. They're ready. But Jesus retreats from them. He's not come to be that kind of Messiah. Next day, the crowd huts him down, and they want breakfast. They're ready for another miracle feeding. And that is where Jesus begins this sermon, and he reveals the true meaning of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus has not come to be a bread giver. He's come to be bread. He's not come to sustain people's earthly lives. He's come to give them spiritual, eternal life. He's not come to be the mediator of God's gift. Like Moses, he has come to be God's gift. And while he is the new Moses, he has not come to lead a a deliverance from people from earthly oppression, but from the bondage of sin. Jesus has come as the true manna, but the way to eat this is by eating his flesh and drinking his blood by faith. Well, the crowd doesn't like this very much. Uh, We said their main problem is earthly mindedness. They're enslaved to this life. Um, Their spiritual deadness, their spiritual needs and thirst don't even register for them. They're unconcerned with what Christ is talking about. They want full bellies in a physical kingdom. But not only are they unaware of their fitness for the kingdom, they're uninterested in the king of the kingdom and the spiritual nature of this kingdom. And so remember, they grumble at Jesus' words. 
that showed us that they are of the same spiritual condition as the first wilderness multitude, right? When, the, when God provided manna. They, they grumble against the new Moses now. They're failing to be led by the physical bread to what the bread was pointing to, Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. But it is not as though the word and the mission of God has failed. Because all those that the Father gives to the Son will certainly come to the Son in faith. And the Son will respond to these out of his devotion to the Father with eager reception and welcoming and giving them eternal life. The reason the crowd is not believing is because they are unable to believe because of their spiritual condition. And the only hope that any will believe in Christ is that the Father must first drag them to the Son. He must first do this new covenant work of transforming their hearts, their natures, such that they will respond to the Son in faith. So that's how you can summarize this sermon. It has grown in intensity. Jesus reveals that he's come to give bread, and then he ends by saying that not only is he bread, but you must eat his flesh and drink his blood. And the unbelief of the crowd has grown in intensity as well. At first, they're confused. They don't understand what he's offering. But at the end, um, they are stiff-arming Christ with full-out rejection. Um, And that's where we pick up this morning in verses 60 through 71, where Jesus exposes false disciples and confirms the faith of true disciples. And we've already learned in John that there are two kinds of faith. John's brought this up several times, beginning back in chapter 2. There's true faith. And there's false faith. And likewise, John now explains that there are two kinds of disciples. True disciples and false disciples. And he's going to work this theme out through the rest of the gospel. And this morning, what we're going to look at is we'll really condense the fundamental difference between true and false disciples. What's the difference? Well, let's begin in verse 60 through 65, the condition of false disciples. Look at verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? So many disciples respond to Christ's words with repugnance, intolerance, rejection. What is very interesting, notice how it begins. It says, when many of his disciples. Now, up to this point in the Gospel of John, the word disciples has been reserved only for the 12 disciples or some of the 12. But this is the first instance in John where people are called disciples who will eventually reject Jesus. And that's a very significant point. We're told back in verse 2 of of chapter 6 that this crowd followed Jesus. Obviously, it means they physically followed him, but the idea is that they identified with him as his disciples. They heard his teaching. They accompanied him. They identified as disciples of Christ. Up to this point, all these seem to be true disciples. So that's why John here in this verse calls them disciples when many of his disciples disciples. They look like and sounded like 
disciples of Christ. But this is going to be a pivotal moment in which many of these are offended at Christ's words and identify with him no longer. In other words, they do not persevere. And so they prove to be false disciples. Flip over to chapter 8 with me. A very similar pattern takes place there. Look at verse 30. Jesus is teaching again. Look at verse 30 of chapter 8. It says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Sounds positive, very uh, encouraging. Lots of people are believing now. But look at verse 31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, same group, if you abide, remain, continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. You're truly my disciples. True disciples abide and remain in the word of Christ. That's one of the fundamental distinctions between true and false disciples. If you abide, you're truly my disciple. You see, perseverance does not earn you the right to be a disciple. That's a free gift of grace. You receive that by faith. But perseverance evidences the true nature of people's faith in Christ. True faith in Christ presses into his words and perseveres by faith. True disciples are those who do not simply embrace Christ because of his works. They embrace Christ because of his words. Look what he says. If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. True disciples are those who hear the words of Christ and find in them their only hope of life. That's what Peter's going to declare at the very end of this. Where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. They hear of his sacrificial death and the authoritative teaching about God and the eternal life Christ offers, and they respond with absolute dependence on him for this, and they continue. But people who have false faith and are false disciples will eventually be offended by Christ and his words, by his commandments, by his exposure of their heart, and by his refusal to satisfy their earthly cravings. And then they will bolt. They're gone. Look over at 1 John chapter 2, how John explains it over there. Look at verse 19. He's talking about this group of people who've gone out from the church. He calls them antichrist, false teachers. Verse 19, they went out from us. So they had originally been part of this church, but they went out. But they were not of us. Why? Why? Because had they been of us, had they truly belonged to us, this group of true disciples, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. True faith in Christ, true disciples are evidenced by perseverance. You can say it like this. The one fruit that cannot be counterfeited in the Christian life is the fruit of perseverance. I can't counterfeit it. 
True faith, true discipleship perseveres by faith and submission in Christ's words and cross work. And those that do not give evidence that their faith and discipleship were defective from the start. So before we move on, I just want to help us think through how we should respond to this as believers. Um, Number one, it's meant to be a warning for us, a call for us to be on guard against unbelief and drifting from Christ and his words. That there is such a thing as being a false disciple is meant to cause us to pay all the more attention and to press into Christ's words all the more. It's meant to shake us up. Be careful. Be on guard against any drifting from his words. Press in daily into his words and all that he's declared about his work, his commandments. Number two. These truths are not meant to paralyze us in fear that one day I may perhaps fall away. That would be a misapplication. These words are meant to call, cause us to look to Christ to preserve us and to do the work that he began. Conversion. How does conversion happen? You believe, right? You act, you work, you do the believing. You have to. If you don't, you are not saved. But it is caused by, that believing is caused by and undergirded by the sovereign work of God. And if he began that work in you, if it's not of you, then he also will sustain and preserve it. You have to keep believing and pressing in, but you're depending on Christ to continue and sustain what he began. We, th- this actually came up several times. Look back at verse 21. Remember they were crossing the sea and Jesus actually gives us an illustration of this. They're crossing the sea. It's chaotic. They bring him in the boat. I think it's an illustration of true discipleship. They receive Christ into the boat with them and immediately the boat is at the land to which they're going. He preserves his disciples definitively to their de- desired destination. Look over at verse 39 now. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. He's promised to preserve and keep his disciples. So while it's true, there is such a thing as being a false disciple. That's meant to call you to be on guard, press in all the more to Christ's words and trust him to preserve you and keep you. And know he will continue the work that he began. In you. So this crowd is identified as disciples. Now look at how they respond to Jesus' words. Look back at verse 60. It says, When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? They said, His teaching is hard. Now, the idea here of hard is it's unpleasant. It's intolerable. His demands to eat his flesh and drink his blood, they cannot bear. It's it's putrefying. It's repelling. Now, it's true. They don't grasp the full meaning. They've misunderstood him. They know he can't be talking about cannibalism, but really aren't sure what he's talking about. But what they do grasp They were filled with intolerance towards. And I would say even if they did understand that he is talking about his sacrificial death here, 
they would still be responding with intolerance. Well, why? Because a crucified Messiah is a stumbling block to Jews. It's the natural response of man to the message of Christ, intolerance. Because of this, they say, who is able to listen to it? So repugnant is the teaching of Christ that no one in his right mind would receive it, is what they say. These words are quite ironic because in one sense they're true. No one is able. No one is able. Christ has already declared that and he's going to declare that again unless something happens. So that brings us now to verses 61 to 65. Christ responds to these disciples with penetrating words. And he begins by highlighting the offense. Look at verse 61. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? So Jesus knows what's going on in their hearts. This is his divine comprehensive knowledge of every person's heart on display. Um, Saw that back in chapter 2. Skip this point there. Um, And because of this knowledge of their hard-hearted unbelief, which has blinded them to his plain words, He continues actually to heighten the offense now. Look what he says. He says, do you stumble over this? You take offense at this. The idea is that they respond with disbelief and rejection at his teaching. And so he says, if my teaching has caused you to stumble, if my teaching has caused you to respond with rejection, then let me tell you something which is certain to cause you to stumble. So verse 62 here is a heightening of the offense. He's given a greater offense than something even than his teaching. What is it? It's a really hard verse, actually, because it's an incomplete sentence. It's an if without a then. So he just gives an if statement. He doesn't give us the then. I think because the then is really obvious. It's literally, if therefore you should see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before. You're left thinking, okay, well then what? Well, the, the then is... It's implied. The idea is that if his teaching has been offensive, then his ascension will be all the more offensive to them. Now, why? Why would that be the case? Why would his ascension be all the more offensive? I can think of two reasons. The first is that they've already been offended by his claim that he's descended from God. Look at back at verse 41. <clears throat> The Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say he's come down from heaven? And now he's claiming that he's going to return to heaven as the exalted son of man from Daniel 7. So that's certain to heighten the offense, but that's not all. Number two, the reason this heightens the offense is because in John, the pathway to Christ's glorification to his ascension to the father do you know what it is how does he ascend to the father through what pathway through the what to through the cross through the cross and resurrection through his suffering in other words if they fail to receive christ as the pre-existent son of god they most certainly will fail to receive him as the one glorified through crucifixion If the very words about Christ's flesh and blood cause cause them to stumble, how much more will they stumble when his very flesh and blood are broken and poured out for the life of the Lord? D.A. Carson put it this way. 
If the disciples find Jesus' claims, authorities, and even his language offensive, what will they think when they see Jesus on the cross, his way of ascending to the place where he was before? That is the supreme scandal. However offensive the linguistic expression, eating flesh and drinking blood may be, how much more offensive offensive is the crucifixion of an alleged Messiah? The very idea is outrageous, bordering on blasphemous obscenity, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So Jesus is not backing down. He's confronting these false disciples and he's heightening the offense. But why do people respond to him in this way? Look where he goes next in verse 63 to 65. Jesus now highlights what is underlying all unbelief. In verse 63, he declares the inability of mere flesh to believe apart from the life-giving spirit. Look at verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The flesh is what? The flesh is human nature apart from the help of the Holy Spirit. It's default natural human beings here. Those who are merely flesh, who are being confronted with Christ's words, profit nothing from them. It's very strong in Greek. It says the flesh does not profit nothing. You can have double negatives in Greek. You can't in English. Um, It doesn't profit nothing. Not a single thing, the flesh. Unaided by the Spirit. The flesh is of no use in helping one come to know and embrace this kind of crucified Messiah. What then is needed? What does he say? It is the Spirit who gives life. This is the essential work of the Spirit. The Spirit must create life before any will not stumble over Christ. Throughout Scripture, giving life is the role of the Holy Spirit. So let me show you a few verses. Genesis 1-2, creation. Spirit of God is involved, hovering over the face of the waters. Psalm 104-30, when you send forth your spirit, they are created. And you renew the face of the ground. Ezekiel 37, and he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say, thus says the Lord Come from the four winds, O breath, breathe on these slain that they may live. And he explains it in verse 14, the new covenant. I'll put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I'll place you in your land. They will know that I'm the Lord. And I'll do it. And Jesus says something very similar to this. He's actually springing off of Ezekiel 37 and John 3. Flip back to there. John 3, speaking to Nicodemus about the new birth. And this very work of the Holy Spirit that must take place. John 3, verse 6, That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound. But you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born from the Spirit. The Spirit alone gives life such that people respond to Christ in his words. Mere flesh cannot do this. 
This is another way of describing the decisive work of the Father. So go to chapter 6, verse 44. Remember Jesus just said this? Listen how similar it sounds. The ability of man. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. There it is, the Father working, bringing people to faith in the Son. And now he speaks of it in terms of the Spirit. The point is that the entire Trinity was involved in bringing people and bringing you to faith in the Son. The Father does his drawing work, his new creation work in the heart to enable faith through the Holy Spirit. It's amazing. But how does the Spirit go about doing this? Um, Does he just randomly zap people? And Oh my word, I believe in Jesus. Is that how he works? No. Look at the second half of this verse. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So look how they parallel. Look, it says it is spirit who gives life. And the words of Christ are what? Are spirit and life. In other words, the spirit uses the words of Christ to bring life. So what do each of these mean? Spirit and life. How is Jesus' word spirit? What does that mean? Really quickly, I think it means his words are spirit means they're produced by the spirit. Back in verse 34 of chapter 3, Jesus said the father has given the spirit to the son in an unmeasured quantity. And that's why the son speaks the words of God. So the words of the son come from the work of the spirit. What then does it mean that his words are life? He says, my words are spirit and my words are life. It means that Jesus's words produce life. They're the source of eternal life. What we've been talking about, his words. Those who receive his words have eternal life. Go back to chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. So in other words, his words form the essential link between his person, which is life, and the dead human soul, which embraces his words by faith. His words communicate his life to the soul of man. So let's conclude this thought in verse 63 with a couple of summary implications. Number one, the only way people will respond to Christ with true faith is if the Spirit first gives them life. But the way the Spirit does this is by working through the words of Christ. The Spirit is behind the words of Christ, and he's working through the words of Christ. Um, Spirit doesn't bring people to faith any other way. Spirit doesn't bring people to faith um, sitting in the woods or doing anything. He uses the word of Christ, right? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Christ's words, in other words, are not passive. They're not just sitting on the side hoping that people will come and embrace them. They're active. They create what they command. They demand faith, and through the Spirit, it creates faith. The very words of Christ. 
we had time, we would look at the passages that show that the words of Christ are used by the Son, by the Father, and by the Spirit all together to produce this life, which results in faith in the Son. Number two, the words of Christ themselves give eternal life and spiritual life to believers. So the Spirit creates life such that people can respond to the Son in faith. And then that faith, which responds to the Son, receives eternal life. You say, well, which is it? And the answer is yes. Which comes first? None. They're, they're, they're simultaneously. The Spirit grants life such that you believe in the Son. And when you believe in the Son, what happens? You have life. And part of that life is what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. The new birth includes both of these. Yes, it's true that you must believe to have the life of Christ. And it's also true that the Spirit is underneath that faith, granting spiritual life such that you can believe. Well, that leads us now to verse 64, the absolute knowledge of Christ in the unbelieving hearts. It says, but there are some, Jesus says, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who were, who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. This verse highlights the fact that despite his, his words being spirit and life, when they come in contact with mere flesh, apart from the working of the spirit, they will result in unbelief. So here Jesus definitively declares that many of these people are, are unbelievers. You say, well, how can Jesus say that? Unlike us, he knows our hearts. He can see our hearts. Look at the rest of the verse. For he knew from the beginning. That could mean from his preexistent time, in the beginning was the word. I think it probably refers to the beginning of his ministry. He knew from the very beginning of his ministry who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. This is perfect knowledge of every human heart. He sees through false faith. He perfectly evaluates people's spiritual condition. And not even this crowd, but even one of his very own who would betray him. Why does Jesus bring this up? Why does John bring this up in this parenthetical statement? It's in order to declare that despite the unbelief of the crowd and even the betrayal of his closest disciple, Christ's mission has not failed and he's not been caught off guard. He knows those. Who are believing him. That brings us now to verse 65, the reaffirmation, the necessity for sovereign grace. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. It's amazing. Jesus won't lay this topic to rest over and over again. He keeps bringing us back to the sovereignty of God and salvation. I am not forcing this under the text it's almost impossible to read john 6 honestly and not just come away with these truths but why does he bring it up again look what he says on account of this or this is why i told you well why what is that pointing back to it's pointing back to the unbelief of the people because you're unbelieving therefore i told you this in this verse, look what it says, that no one could come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Sounds a lot like verse 44. Verse 44, no one could come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In other words, Jesus says, I am speaking these things to you. I spoke verse 44 to you because of your unbelief. 
Now, why would you tell these things to an unbeliever? In order to excuse their unbelief? Hey, you're not able to you know, believe him. It's okay. Well, no. Unbelief is always culpable, um, punishable. They're accountable to believe. That's not the reason. What is the reason? It is meant to show them the depth of their spiritual deadness, to humble their pride and to direct them to their only hope. What is interesting is the, the similarity. So look back at verse 63. The spirit gives life. That's what is essential for coming to Christ. Now look verse 65. It's the father who does it. Same work, different perspective. And listen how clear it is. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is given to him by the father. What is the it? What do you think? Unless it is given. Is it not the coming? Look what he says. No one could come to me, believe in me, unless it, unless the very coming, unless the very faith, the very believing is given to him by the Father. That's exactly what he said in verse 44. Unless the Father drags you, teaches you in your heart, gives you a new heart, you will not believe. Well, that brings us now, we'll, we'll flesh this out at the end with some implications, but before we get there, Final contrast between true and false disciples, 66 through 71. And 66 tells us about the apostasy of false disciples. It says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus has known their hearts. He's spoken in such a way such as to reveal their unbelief and cause them to abandon him now. And far from a failure on Christ's part, it is actually his success. He doesn't want false disciples. He's not after amassing a group of people that are false disciples. It's important for us because when Scripture exposes people in their sin and unbelief such that they turn from Christ as grieving And sorrowful as that is, this is the work of Christ, just as much as regeneration is the work of Christ. Exposing and repelling false disciples is just as much the work of Christ. His word is either hardening or it is softening. It is either a fragrance of life to life or a fragrance of death to death. When people leave Christ after his word's been rightly divided, know that Christ's word is working. It brings people to life, and it also repels pretenders. That's what's going on here. This passage began with a large crowd following him, and now they no longer walk through him. The words of Christ has winnowed his disciples. He will not allow his disciples to hang out in the middle between rejecting him and embracing him as he truly is. He preaches in order that these would either come to faith in him or reject him. Well, let's go on now to verse 67 to 71. The perseverance of true disciples. Do this very quickly, two, two minutes. In contrast to the false faith of the crowd, listen to the confession of true disciples. Verse 67. Jesus said to the twelve, You don't want to go away also, do you? That's how it is in the Greek. It assumes a negative answer. You don't also want to go away, do you? 
Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter, on behalf of the twelve, gives this great confession of faith. To whom shall we go? It implies that they consider the possibility of leaving Christ. Went through the pros and cons of it and concluded that such a move is for them an impossibility. Why? Because they've concluded that Christ and Christ alone possesses the words of eternal life. In other words, they know their own spiritual hunger and thirst. And they found in Christ's words, person, and cross work the only thing that will satisfy it. In other words, they say, if we abandon Christ, where can I go for cleansing for sin? Where can I go for the Holy Spirit and the transformation of my rebellious heart? Where can I go for communion and access to the triune God? If it's not Christ, to whom shall I go? That is the confession of a true disciple. And Peter finishes by declaring Jesus' identity. We have known and believed that you are the Holy One of God. A very unique title, only used by demons in Matthew and and Luke. Mark and Luke, actually. I think it's a way of highlighting that he's the Messiah. And he's also on par with God. He is the Holy One. Peter knows his identity and embraces him by persevering faith as a true disciple. And you thought we were done with the sovereignty of God, didn't you? Look at what is behind it. Verses 70 to 71. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you? Twelve. And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. He chose the twelve. That underlies the faith of Peter. Yes, you believe, Peter. I chose you. And yet one is a devil. He's an instrument of the devil. He's a child of the devil. Jesus says that to make clear that Judas' betrayal is not an exception to his election. Everyone he chooses, everyone the Father gives to him will come. And everyone he comes, he will preserve all the way to the end. His plan is never thwarted. It never fails. So that's an amazing chapter, long chapter, profound chapter. Um, I have three implications for you. We're out of time. Any questions, comments before I rattle those off? Yes. Mm-hmm. In this instance, it's, it's kind of different, though. It's like a picture. In your, is it because in, uh, I guess, just in the straightforward sense, he chose them to follow him, yeah. and the one he always knew was going to betray him from the beginning. Yeah. But I guess you can't read into it too far in terms of... So he lost like, salvation. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Excellent. Yep. And I think that's clear from the text. Look what he says. One of you is a devil. His nature never changed, right? He was always a child of Satan, which Jesus is going to talk about the Jews in chapter 8. They're all sons of the devil, um, naturally. Um, So Judas had never been changed spiritually as the 11 had. He chose them. Why? We don't have time. You go to chapter 17, verse 12. It's according to the purpose of the Father that one would betray him. Um, 
It's all in accord with the Father's plan. Um, so that's an excellent observation. Um, questions? Yeah, Bob. Just a quick question. I, I know when you look at this, one of the things that, that just jumped out to me was how Christ used the sovereignty of God in uh, essentially in talking to unbelievers. Yeah. And it's something that I often shy away from. You know, it's not, I don't go in talking about God's sovereign election. So I know that that isn't meant to be prescriptive, probably, but mm-hmm. you can certainly draw from that example. Yeah. Is that safe to say, or do you think there's a caution there? Yeah. In, in talking about that? Where did I see that just recently? I think there's a Puritan work on using the doctrines of grace in evangelism. Huh. I need to look that up. That yeah. might be a good Saturday morning book study or something. Yeah. But uh, uh, no, I think it's appropriate. I think you have to be careful. For instance, using it as a way that they're going to come away thinking, okay, all I have to do is just passively sit by and wait for God to zap me. Or I'm, I'm excused for my unbelief. You help them see the misapplications, but yeah, you humble their pride through it. And you call them, yeah, you can't change your na- nature. Press into Christ. Look to him. Beg him to change you. Read the word. Fill your life with scripture. He'll do it. You know, and um, yeah, it's really good. Good question. All right, we got one minute. All right, so, and one minute makes this five minutes over. So know the proper use of the doctrines of grace. They're not for debating and arguing. They're for dying with confidence. The gospel doesn't fail. Never fails. They're to give you such steel girders such that, and it's coming in our culture, when there's mass defection from Christ all around, you won't be moved. His mission is not failing. He saves those the Father's given him. Trust him. It's meant to make you strong and confident. Meant to make you people of prayer. Don't throw your hands up. Say, why pray if God's sovereign? I say, if God is sovereign, that's the reason you pray. What are you going to pray? God, just nudge them a little bit. Don't take them all the way. No, you're praying. God, change their hearts. Grant them life. Cause the spirit to give them life. Drag them to Christ. Pray. Number two, let the reality of false discipleship spur you to deeper into Christ and his words. Number three, the spirit who gives life through Christ's words to bring us to faith in Christ continues to produce life in us through his words. John 15, abide in his words, you'll bear much fruit, and you'll truly be his disciples. So let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Oh, Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for Christ. We love you. It's our desire to abide in your word and bear much fruit and truly be your disciples. We love you. Prepares for the service to come in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys. I love you. We'll see you Wednesday night, Lord willing. Come on out.